morning. Father in heaven, we just ask and pray that you would teach us that there is so much power in small things and just the little hints of life and spiritual growth are enough to gladden your heart. And so may we have eyes to see that you work in the still small voice is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, there was a lot of people whose imaginations were captured by a very young, tiny girl. And uh, I, when I first became aware of this little girl, and I'm going to call her a little girl, uh, I first thought, well, who's this girl? Who, what, what does she have to say that is worth hearing? Perhaps you heard about her. Her name, let's see if you can recognize the picture that we'll put up on the screen. Her name is Greta Thunberg. Did any of you come across this young lady this week? She made waves around the world because she was at the United Nations where they were having uh, talks on global warming and climate change. And she, with all of her courage and bravery, took on the world's leaders. This girl, I was doing a little uh, reading about her afterwards because I thought to myself, man, this girl has a lot of anger. And she was very upset. And so I did a little more reading on her. She is shorter than five feet tall. She's 16 years old. And what was perhaps most interesting to me is that she's actually autistic. She started this wave, this revolution. That's literally what it is. This revolution that is trying to raise awareness about climate change. She was so fed up with what the world leaders were failing to do that she said, you know, I'm going to take it upon myself. Now, this sermon here is not a discussion about climate change. We can have that another time, all right? We can have that another time. But I'm I'm just really intrigued by her ability to captivate the world's attention. About a year ago, I think it was last September, she decided to take it upon herself. She unilaterally decided that she was going to address climate change. And so what she decided to do was one Friday, she showed up at the House of Parliament in Stockholm, Sweden, to, to protest their lack of addressing climate change. And so at first, this little less than five feet tall girl, she sat there with her signs, and people kind of looked at her and thought, well, she's a strange girl, what is she doing? But week after week, every Friday, she would stand outside the House of Parliament and slowly but surely, a larger and larger crowd started gathering. To the extent that now, every Friday, students around the world, uh, they, they, they protest at their schools to the tune of 2 million students every Friday. This last September 20, just a few days ago, There was a global climate day, or I'm not even sure the exact name of it, but they estimate that some 4 million people around the world gathered to raise awareness about climate change. This girl, Greta Thunberg, she has, check this out, on Instagram, 6.6 million followers on Instagram. Just this little girl. How many followers do you guys have on Instagram, by the way? I'm struggling to get to... What's Instagram, some wonder? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I know some in this, in this room have, have uh, thousands of followers on Twitter, but not even the greatest among us have millions of followers on social media. But this little girl, just a little five foot tall, less than five foot tall, Greta Thunberg from Sweden. I was reading, again, more information on her, because I was really intrigued by, by this young girl. And I came across this quotation from her. She used to be a depressed loner, and when, when this idea of climate change captivated her imagination, she decided that she was going to take on the world and talk about how leaders around the world were not addressing it to the degree that they should have been. And she said this. I thought it was very, very interesting. She said in one article I read, she said, all my life I have been like the invisible girl at the back that no one sees or listens to. What an interesting thing to say. That she was just this little anonymous young girl, autistic, wanting to change the world. Nobody would listen to her, and then now she has started a revolution that is sweeping around the world. Again, I'm not here to discuss the merits or the lack of merits in her particular position. But I am intrigued that this, this little girl could start this revolution. This, this uh, teaching series that we've been doing, this is now part like, I don't know, what is it? Part like 30 or something? I don't even know how many we've done so far. But we started this, this back in August, the first Saturday in August. We started this new series called Viral, Unleashing the Revolution. We're taking it based on this passage in the book of Revelation where John, the one who received this vision, he saw this, this amazing revolution taking place right before the end times. And I believe, as I've mentioned before, and you may disagree with me, but I think we're living in the end of days, that things can't keep going on the way they are going because I think whatever happens, one way or the other, things are going to come to a real head. And I happen to believe, as I have shared in the past, that Jesus is actually going to come soon. Um, it's fascinating. I was just v- visiting with a, a woman that I met recently, and I was talking to her about this idea, and she goes, well, what makes you think that Jesus is going to come soon? And uh, I shared with her a few of my thoughts, and I shared with her a few passages in Scripture, but I believe that Jesus is coming soon, and before that happens, however, there will be this revolution. There will be this, this viral movement that goes forth that illuminates, it says in Revelation chapter 1, and illuminates the earth with God's glory. Notice these words again. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. So there will be this movement. We, as we discussed in the very first part of our teaching series, it doesn't look too good for Christianity right now, does it? There's lots of things that are leading to the demise of Christianity in the minds of many people, especially in the Western world. But God promises that there will be this revolution that illuminates the earth with his glory. Now, as we've looked at, and I won't recount for us all like 30 of our previous teachings, but as we looked at, the revolution really began on that Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago where Jesus, when he went to the cross, started and unleashed this revolution of other-centered love. 
This morning, however, we're going to look at something quite surprising about the revolution because I came across this this last week, this passage in the book of Luke, but we're going to look at it from the book of Mark that talks about the way that God's revolution, the way that his kingdom starts and grows. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we're going to put it up on the screen, of course. And if you have your paper Bibles, you can look it up. This will be from the New King James Version. But Mark chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 30. Notice what Jesus says. This is Mark recording it. He says, Then he, that is Jesus, said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? So he's here trying to explain. We've looked at this many times before, this idea that Jesus is always drawing metaphors for what his kingdom is all about. He's always drawing analogies of what his kingdom is all about. And so he's like, you know, if we were to talk about the kingdom, how would we describe it? He's like asking this this hypothetical question so that his listeners will start probing their minds. No doubt if you had been in that audience and you had thought to yourself, okay, the kingdom of God is like a huge army, right? That's what the kingdom of God is like. Or we might say the kingdom of God is like, oh, I don't know, a huge building or some huge ginormous thing. That's what the kingdom of God is in our minds. And of course, some of you have already read this parable, and so you know where Jesus is going with this. But if you're in that original audience, you would be completely shocked with the words that Jesus brings to their attention next. He says, this is what I'll liken the kingdom of God to. Notice what he says. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Again, if you had been sitting there where Power was the most important currency in their understanding. They were looking for a Messiah to come to liberate the Jewish people from Roman bondage. And so that meant violence and force and swords and clubs and all these things. And so Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 hold on, hold on. The kingdom of God is like a little tiny mustard seed. You know, I'm not one to usually use um, props, but I decided to bring a mustard seed today. Okay? Can you see it? Actually, no, I don't really have one, but you wouldn't know anyway if I did. (laughs) But that, like, it's the tiniest of tiniest. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. He says, it is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. Now, there's been some debate. I was reading scholars who have been debating, and some atheists will say, aha, see, you know, the Bible can't be trusted because we know that mustard seeds are not really the tiniest seeds on earth. Now, we won't tackle all the implications of that, but probably in that time and that day, this, this was understood as the tiniest of tiniest seeds. It is actually, a mustard seed is one millimeter big. It's, it's the tiniest of tiniest. Again, whether it's literally the tiniest of seeds is, is not the point. But Jesus makes this point that this is what God's kingdom is like. It is like this tiny little mustard seed, he goes on to say. But when it is sown, check out what happens. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds... 
of the air may rest under its shade. Very fascinating. Now, this is not, shouldn't be surprising to us because Jesus has had the habit of revealing himself in small things. This is, this is Jesus' way of operating. After all, this is the same Jesus who, as the Son of God, the God of the universe, came in the form of a little, small, thank you for your poem again, Jim. We've heard it a few times, but we never tire of it. A little, small baby. A little, small baby. Now, if you were plotting a plan to take over the world, would the first thing you thought of be, you know what, I'm going to become a baby. I, mean, I, think, I think that's a good idea. I think being a baby will be the means by which I take over the world. This is what God decided he would do. Become a little baby. Now check this out, though. Not only did God become a baby, but when he came to, to, to set off his kingdom, to start this revolution, for 30 years, he did basically nothing. Now, of course, I'm being very facetious. He did a lot, but he didn't do anything as far as we would calculate as being kingdom building. I like this point that this author makes. His name is Alan Hirsch. He's a missiologist, which is a just big fancy way of saying he studies mission and missionary movements. And he makes this point, which I thought was really fascinating. Check this out. He says, the fact that God was in the Nazarene neighborhood for 30 years and no one noticed. Really fascinating. Nobody noticed. Here's God on earth. Nobody, nobody notices. He's just doing his thing. He said the fact that he was on the earth for 30 years and no one noticed should profoundly, should be profoundly disturbing to our normal ways of engaging what? Mission. This is what the point he's talking about. He says not only does it have implications for our affirmations of normal human living, but it also says something about the timing as well as the relative anonymity of incarnational ways of engaging mission. Did you follow that? He's simply saying, guys, there's something powerful about just this normal, everyday way of living life that is powerful testament to God's kingdom. He goes on to say, there is a time for in-your-face approaches to mission, but there is also a time to simply become part of the fabric of a community and engage in the humanity of it all. That's what Jesus did for 30 years. He was just there doing his thing. We know, of course, Joseph was a carpenter. We know Jesus was often with him, accompanying him. And so he was just going through life, doing the normal stuff of life. Nobody taking notice of what he was doing. Nobody paying attention to the fact that this was God on earth. And yet Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed. You see, the reality is that small is the new big. Small is the new big. This is, what, this is how God primarily chooses to reveal his, his ways and his character. This is the, the way that God primarily chooses to go about setting off his revolution. Now he promises, as we're going to unpack a little bit more, he promises that that revolution will grow to be this huge flourishing movement. But you know what? I can tell you, and this is not a... a uh, any indication that this is the way that we're going permanently, but last Sabbath, last Sabbath was a powerful experience. Those of us who were gathered together in homes instead of being here, 
It was, I mean, I was just so blessed by it. We were able to, to worship in the Harton home. And, uh, man, it was so cool. There was people that had come that, that hadn't come here before. And, you know, as we just sat around the living room, and Paul was sharing, and Stan was sharing, and Courtney was sharing, and our friend Jenna was sharing, sharing her, her deep pain that she's experienced, and all of us sharing our reflections, it was like, man, this is God's kingdom right here. This is a revolution that, that seems small, and yet it has tremendous consequences. Tom was telling me that this week as I was driving him home from the, from the, uh, the hospital. He was sharing with me that he met somebody on the plane as he was flying back. And if any of you have ever spent any time with Judy and Tom, you know they have lots of plane stories. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we won't go into that, but... He's saying, yeah, I just got to talking about, talking with the guy sitting next to me. And Tom's an introvert, by and large, right, Judy? But he said, yeah, I got to talking about our church in Bangor. And we're like, what? (laughs) Tom talking about church in Bangor? But he said to me, you know what? When you spend 15 minutes with somebody, you change their life. That's what Tom said to me. And he's like, I was like, Tom, you're preaching to the preacher. It's like, you change their life. It's like, literally, you change their life. Literally, because every encounter that we have with somebody is life-altering and life-changing. Just the small, little experiences. That's what God's kingdom is. But you know what? It takes patience and faith. Because you put that seed in the ground, and you're sitting there, and you don't know if that thing is going to come up, right? I think, I, I don't know, I've never planted a mustard seed. Have any of you ever planted a mustard seed here? Well, I understand that it could take, I don't know, 90 to 120 days or so for a mustard seed to grow into a full tree. And so as you're there, you're just doing stuff by faith, aren't you? You're just watering. You're hoping for the sunshine to come down and to raise it up. And God says that's what his kingdom is. It is often the very humble work of pouring into his work and not knowing if it's going to materialize and it's going to blossom and grow and bloom. And that's what, that's what God's kingdom is all about. It's nurturing those relationships. It's nurturing those friendships. It's, it's, it's entering into life with people. And as we talked about two weeks ago, it's, it's sitting at the table with others. It's, it's, it's being companions with them as you, as you just enter into life with them. And that's what Jesus did again and again and again. It's interesting because Tom Rayner, who is a, uh, a Christian, uh, I don't know what his official label would be, but he notices trends within Christianity. He, he said this, which I thought was fascinating, about millennials. Now, I proudly am a millennial, believe it or not. I'm just on the edge, so I can speak on behalf of all millennials. Is that okay? Will you grant me that privilege? But he made this, he made this fascinating observation about millennials, who are the largest generation, although I think Gen Z is coming up now and maybe larger, largest generation in America right now. I know. No, period. So notice what he goes on to say. Notice what he goes on to say. Millennials generally stay away from huge, large worship gatherings. Generally. 
their preference is smaller worship gatherings. In the 80s, some of you are old enough to remember the 80s, right? In the 80s, there was a strong emphasis on getting as many people in one place at one time as possible. And the more you could get in one place at one time, the healthier you were. He says that's no longer the case. Healthiness today is often measured by group attendance, not worship attendance. I thought that was a fascinating idea that, that, that just as Jesus said, it's in the smallness. It's in that little mustard seed that then starts to grow into, into it, it germinates and it gets bigger. And, and Jesus said just previous to our passage in Mark 42, he talks about first the, what does he say? I didn't put it up on the screen. First the blade, then the ear, then the, then the, yeah, thank you, Roger. Thank you, Robin. It's this process whereby God's grace we invest, and we invest, and we invest. And I was just reading last week, we talked about, some of us talked about this last Friday night, where Abraham and Moses, they move forward by faith. They move forward. Abraham, it says, he didn't know where he was going, but he moved forward, and he moved forward. And it says, these all, moving by faith, did not actually receive the promise. They kept moving forward, though. They couldn't see. They walked by faith, not by sight. And they said, you know what? God is up to something. God is doing something. I may not be able to see it, but God is doing something. There's this quotation from a classic book called Christ's Object Lessons from Ellen White. And she puts it this way. She says, check this out, the Lord desires that his word of grace shall be brought home to every soul to a great degree this must be accomplished by check this out what did she say personal Personal labor this was christ's method his work was largely made up of personal interviews you know there's stories in scripture about him feeding the five thousand and preaching to the masses but this author at least proposes that actually the bulk of his ministry was spent in personal interviews. She says, check this out. He had, I love this phrase, he had a faithful regard for the one soul audience. Isn't that a beautiful thought? The one soul audience. Through that one soul, the message was often extended to thousands. We are not to wait for souls to come to us. We must go seek them out where they are, There are multitudes who will never be reached by the gospel unless it is carried to them. It's an interesting idea that the revolution starts starts small. It starts with one person sitting across the table from one person. And God's kingdom grows and it expands that way. This should not be surprising to us after all. Because as you read the gospel account... Jesus was born in a humble stable where just a handful of people came to worship him at his birth. And how did his life end? I think of that experience, John chapter 19, verse 25. This is how he describes the audience that was there at Jesus' side. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
Full stop. Now Luke does go on to describe, the writer Luke says that there was other women that gathered. Interesting, only women. And then John, presumably, because Jesus then talks to him. But the Son of God was born in an anonymity. And he dies this death of anonymity. And yet it was that small seed, that tiny seed, with four people at his side that started this whole revolution. The whole thing was set off just by that simple little act. It's, of course, not little, is it? It was really big. It started a revolution. You know, we've, we've been doing, specifically our little humble church here locally, has been more deliberate and intentional about being a part of God's mission to save the world. And we don't have any vision or, or delusions that we're going to save the world because all we want to do is be that person that is with that person. There's an expression within Judaism that says to save one person is to save the world. And you and I, by God's grace, some of you are still kind of leaning in and trying to figure it out, but you and I have been more intentional about it for the last year or so. We, we started our church again afresh a year ago, and uh, we've been at it a little over a year. And, you know, we've had our ups and downs, haven't we? We've had our highs. Like a couple of Sabbaths ago, we had tons of people here. And then we have our lows, like today, with fewer people here. But you know what? That's not what, that's not what really counts. What counts is, are you and I joining up with that mission, that revolution, God's kingdom? Are we allowing God's kingdom to break in to the circles that you and I enter? I want to share this one last quote with you, and I know the children are coming in. I want to share this one last quote with you. It's a long quote, and then I'm going to share a story, and then we're going to sing, okay? Can you stick with me? All right. It's going to be long. You're with me, Mike? All right, check this out. The church is always tempted toward a church of what? Glory. Whether that takes the form of grand buildings, political influence, global structures, charismatic personalities, or megachurches. But we must put our energies into the church of the cross. The cross shows us a different type of glory, doesn't it? Even if it means obscurity. You know one of the nicest compliments I got recently? It was actually just this past week. My friend Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Goopy, he's not here today. He and his family are away. They've been exploring our church, and we meet every week, and he says to me, you know what? I really like how you're always trying to get other people involved. And I thought, you know, that's an awesome compliment. By God's grace, and it, I explained to him, you know what, I have pride that I want to take all the glory for little stuff, but that's what we're trying to do, is be a church where everyone is involved. Everybody gets the glory. And we all live in obscurity, but God's kingdom grows. 
says, the problem is that this is so counterintuitive and countercultural that we do not believe it. We believe that God will use the powerful and important and impressive, but he does not. Well, I might amend that a little bit. He does use them, but not only. He says, we need a radical change of perspective. This is actually two authors. We need to ditch our worldly notions of success. We need to ditch our modernistic preoccupation with numbers and size. We need to turn our notions of success upside down so that we align them with God's kingdom perspective. On the final day, he's, he's now just quoted actually this passage we just looked at. On the final day, what is unseen will be revealed and what is small will do what? It will fill the earth. But in the present, God's kingdom is secret. It grows unseen. It is small in the eyes of this world. We need to trust God's word and God's reign. Success is not defined in terms of what can be seen. For God's kingdom is unseen. Success is to be faithful to Christ and his word. The future of mission does not lie in grand strategies or metastructures. Christ is building his church, for the most part unseen, in the shape of thousands of small congregations. This is the future of the church. Now, I know this could be, like, very conveniently used by a pastor of a smaller church and say, Ha ah, ha, look at this! We're being successful. But as I read scripture... I see that this is the way God normally operates. Just a small group of shepherds were there at his birth. Just a handful, some say three, we don't know, of wise men were there at his birth. Just 12 disciples followed him. And then at the cross, there was just one. And there was a few other ladies as well. And then in the upper room, there was just a handful. And God says, you know, just like with Gideon, this is, the, this is the right number I need. This other guy, Alan Hirsch, I've shared it before, but he says, God can do more with 12 disciples than 12,000 religious consumers. So you and I are that little band of, of revolutionary kingdom builders. And as I was thinking about this whole idea, there was a particular experience that happened about a year ago, and the reason it's fresh on my mind is because I was reading about this in my prayer journal just a couple weeks ago. About a year ago, Jim and I were meeting together, and you know where we were meeting, right, Robin? We were meeting at Bagel Central, and as we're sitting there at a table, in walks this dude that I really just absolutely love, and Mike introduced me to him. His name is Fred. Now, you have to understand something about Fred. Fred's a really cool dude. And Fred, who's five foot seven and 135 pounds, can take Mike down and like, just like that. Right, Mike? At least that's what you tell me. I haven't actually seen it. Because <laughs> Fred is an MMA fighter. And uh, he is a very, very accomplished amateur, although he recently turned professional, MMA fighter. And uh, you, would, you would not know it by looking at Fred. He is the nicest dude in the world outside of Mike. But he, that's why Mike lets him beat him. But he is the nicest dude in the world, and he, he, he's a waiter at um, Timber. And he, he also works at a nightclub, but just the nicest dude. And you'll see him around town sometimes riding a pink moped. But this 
this, this dude is ferocious once he gets in the ring. I, I trust. I know because he had this championship bout a few years ago, and I was thinking, you know what, maybe just to be supportive, I should go and, and support Fred there. And I was like, well, I better not. <laughs> and so he posted the fight later on to Facebook, and I clicked it and I watched it. And the first round, it was kind of like, you know, kind of tame. And then the start, the moment the bell rang in the second round, he took off for his opponent and just, yeah, the kids are back in the room. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, good thing I didn't go to that. But he's the nicest dude. So anyway, Jim and I are sitting there and we're talking. We say, hey, Fred, pull up a chair. And so Fred pulls up a chair and he just sits, he sits down. And for the next 30 minutes, he and Jim and I just started chatting. And you know what? We got to talking about God. And so Fred, who was raised Catholic, I, said, I told him one time, I said, Fred, you know what? You remind me of Jesus so much. Now, maybe not the MMA part, but, um, but he just is the nice guy. And so I said, Fred, you remind me of Jesus so much. And he, he, was, he, he took the compliment. He said, well, thank you. That's very nice of you. But you know what? The, the awesomest thing happened, and this is why Jesus sends people out in twos, Because as we're winding down, Jim says, why don't we pray? And so I said, okay, that's cool. And then Jim goes and he suggests something else. Remember what you suggested, Jim? (laughs) He said, why don't we hold hands? (laughs) So here the three of us are sitting in Bagel Central. Jim, MMA fighter, Fred, and me, holding hands in Megal Central, praying. And I'm just like, this is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we prayed, and then Fred left. And then, you know what? The next day, I get a message from Fred. And he said, Sean, man, I just really appreciate you. I'm just so glad that there's that men in my life that I can look up to. And I'm thinking, what, is, what do I have to offer? And I don't say this for any glory of my own because I have none. Just be in there. But you know what? That's God's revolutionary kingdom breaking in. I don't know if Fred will ever be in this room, and that's okay. But in that moment, in that 30 minutes, Jim and myself changed Fred's life. And you know what? He changed ours as well. But you know, I see him around town every once in a while still. I'm sure Mike gets pummeled by him still. But, you know, this is what, this is what the, the kingdom, this is what the revolution is all about, sitting at the table with people in the smallness of that experience and just being God's kingdom people as we live to bless and to serve and to just point people in a humble way to Jesus. And eventually, that seed will grow and it will fill the whole earth with God's glory by his grace. So you want to be a part of that revolution in your very humble, small way by his grace?